welcome to the Sizzle Podcast. I am Dr. Joe Taylor. In every one of our episodes, I bring my psychological lens along and the guests and I have a warm conversation about a hot topic. I think when people look at the wealth of travellers, they perceive it in a negative way. The way in which we see wealth within our community is anti-capitalist. But we have this really old belief, before someone dies, they have to give you whatever they want to give you. After they die, everything they owned gets burned. The notion is that you're starting from scratch, you don't start from inherited wealth. So if you think about it from a capitalist perspective, you can't inherit wealth, you can't build wealth. Aristocracies are impossible within our culture. Today I am talking to David Donaldson, who is the founder of Progress in Dialogue. Our conversation explores the culture, history and persecution of gypsy, traveller and Roma people. And it's a conversation which has a lot of poignant moments. There are some very sad bits, but there are also some thoughts about what people can do to understand more and to support Gypsy, Traveller and Roma people. I can remember the first time I met you, uh, the only time I met you actually, um, and it was at an event I was putting on with Francis and I remember we had a conversation and I learned so much in like 10 minutes. I just thought, wow, <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much kind of um, knowledge in you, but also applied application. There's so much, you do so much. Thanks. And uh, so I just really, I'm excited to be able to explore your life and your work but it would be useful just to kind of hear how you describe yourself and um, and the things that you're focusing on at the moment. Totally. Yeah, I suppose to begin with, you know, I describe myself as a Scottish traveller. I am first and foremost a Scottish traveller. I've got Romanade Gypsy blood in me. I've got French traveller blood in me. Yeah, I would say I'm a Scottish traveller. Proud of the fact that I'm a Scottish traveller, don't get me wrong. I'm extremely proud. Very open about my identity and who I am. But it wasn't always like that, you know, and I think... That speaks to not only, obviously, younger me, but also a lot of young travellers and gypsy people who feel that to get on in this world or to do a career path that's perhaps less traditional, they have to hide who they are and they have to pretend to be someone that they're not, which obviously has massive implications for their own mental well-being and you know how they feel about themselves and their own self, self-esteem, really. So I suppose a lot of my work is built on the fact that I had to who I was for so long to even gain basic things like an education that so many in this country obviously take for granted especially in Scotland where it's all free right and university is free and for me to even access that and to, to get up the runs and the ladder that would allow me to eventually go to university I had to pretend to be a settled person and then completely change who I was and put on this mask if you like so a lot of my work obviously is is tied to that and inherently because I can't help but being tied to that because that's my experience is to try and portray I suppose a, a role model and not in the way that I think people should look up to me not in any way but the way I use role model is much more in the sense that I break the stereotype and I think it's important for people who break the stereotype because there's so many out there right I'm not unique in this people who break the stereotype to actually be really open about that and be really proud about who they are and where they come from because it helps to break down how people look at gypsy travellers it helps to actually ensure that our people are looked upon as people first and foremost rather than 
all of the stereotypes, the history is built up. So that's that's really what I'm working on. And uh, I suppose just using my own lived experience to help other people understand the culture um, and to work with decision makers to make sure that voices in my community that are less heard um, actually have a platform and can be heard. Parts of my community that maybe didn't go to school or maybe don't know as much about legislation are supported and empowered through the knowledge that I have got. And you know what, like the way you describe the importance of if you break the stereotype, if you're able representing that, you know, I have had conversations with people in the past about small things like my accent. If you look at me, you wouldn't necessarily expect my accent to come out of my mouth. Many people converge to a different accent just because it's easier. I almost feel now at a point where I'm like, it's important for me not to do that because I am representing with this accent. So that point really resonated with me. And just to share an anecdote, you know, when I met you, you were studying for your undergraduate degree and you were talking about going to Europe to meet these community leaders and talk to political change makers. And I was like, <laughs> wow, like you're, you're worried about whether you're going to get a good grade in second year. And you're also doing this work, which I felt like was so, it almost didn't match up, you know, that you were operating on this community level and you were thinking on this international scale and yet you were having to get that whatever grade in your in your essays so I suppose even back then which was years ago I've really been interested in the work that you're the work you're involved in I I'd love to know more about where you're at with that at the moment yeah a couple of years ago now wasn't it time flies yeah I mean nothing much has changed in terms of kind of the platforms I'm involved in. I mean, I'm involved more, I suppose. I'm not involved any less. Graduated now, which is good because it's exactly as you say, university to me was more like a side hobby. It was a lot of leniency given to me in terms of missing classes, I think. I think my excuses always bore through though. Like I remember on a number of occasions have to try out, we call them C6s. Uh, when you don't go to basically your tutorials or something, you have to fill out this paperwork as to why you didn't go basically. I remember like some of my mates would be like, oh, you know, I, I felt ill, which was just code for I had a hangover or, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. And I, don't know, I almost felt inauthentic as a student because I'd always tell the truth on them. And I'd always be like, um, I was meeting with the Commissioner for Human Rights and I was in Romania teaching for the Council of Europe. And so I think there was a few assessors probably got a laugh out of my C6s, but, uh, but it was all true, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad that I've left uni I loved uni I did and it was interesting to I think for me because I was working basically full-time as an activist as well as being a full-time student I was engaging with so many different peoples throughout Europe and I was working with really hard hitting issues like my first experience with leading a restorative justice practice session with a family who'd experienced a severe severe hate crime I mean their two little girls had been severely beaten a gang beaten by 10 other girls and there was elements of police corruption and all this type of stuff. And I led on restorative justice practice with that family, and I led on the full thing. So I was doing that, but then the next day I was worrying about writing a tutorial presentation for like five marks or something. So it is really much what you were saying. Yeah, I'm glad that I left uni because now I've got a bit more free time to think, but I also kind of miss that element where the theory that we were learning in uni was so applied in what I was doing, and it really helped what I was doing in person, but like my experiences helped to 
better frame the theories that we were working on, but actually it was like university was more applied for me. Um, whereas when I spoke to some of my friends who were just studying uni and maybe going out and stuff, but not doing any of the other extracurricular stuff I was doing, it wasn't as applied yet. I, I think it had an advantage there, if I'm honest. So I kind of missed that. I missed the learning bit, but I'm glad that I've, I've now graduated because it gives me more time to work with communities. And obviously that's principle and what I want to do and really help people. I suppose it all goes back to the fact that when I was younger, going to school was seen as a non-traditional thing to do, especially for a traveller laddie. And it was something that you you maybe went to until primary seven, um, until you could read and write and count, basically. But after that, education wasn't worth anything. Um, after that, you were supposed to go and work with your feather and make money, basically. But I took a non-traditional route. I went to university. I went to high school. But when I went to high school, I still wasn't completely set on it. There was more of a push from my mother and feather. They've always been quite forward thinking, I think, in terms of education. And they were always quite pushy about me going to high school. So I went. I hated high school. I was fighting all the time. I was getting excluded. I was getting red cards. I was on behavioural slips, punishments constantly, breaking folks' arms. Like, really, I was the bad kid. But the reason wasn't because I was a bad person at all. It was, and I, at the time I didn't see it, but now looking back, it was because I was pretending to be someone that I wasn't. I had to pretend to be a settled person at school, but I had no idea what a settled person looked like. I didn't know what a settled person would say, how they would sound. Everything was new, and I was kind of making up basically who I was. And because I wore that mask, it, it wore on me, but at the time I didn't realise. So anyway, fourth year came round, and of course in Scotland you're allowed to leave at fourth year. I don't know if it's the same in England, but you're allowed to leave. So I, I was going to leave and I, I was it. I'd, I'd made my mind up. I was like, no, school isn't for me. I'm going to go and work with my feather. I'm not doing this anymore. We were on the road. That's what it was. It was an Easter time, the Easter before I was allowed to leave. And I was on the road with my family on a camp that my family had been on for hundreds of years. Uh, we'd continued to go back there. And my granddad just that day had told us the stories of the camp and, you know, what my ancestors had done on the camp, why basically we started going there and, and the meaning of the place to us. And then later on that night, the police came down and they were moving us. They were, they were shifting us on. And we hadn't done anything wrong. It was just because we were there and they didn't, they didn't want us there. So me and my older cousin were sitting in the front of this motor. We were talking about basically how much, how angry we were that we were getting moved on and we hadn't done anything. We hadn't left a mess. We hadn't, you know, genuinely done anything. No bother. How it felt like the only reason that we were being moved is because our sole existence being travellers wasn't a crime in people's eyes. We were talking and we were thinking, right, you know, if we got in front of Nicola Sturgeon, for example, what would we say? Although it wouldn't have been Nicola Sturgeon then, Alex Sandbrough. You know, what would we say? How would we change things? You know, what would we do? And I wrote something down and my cousin looks across at me and he said, I'd love to be able to do that. And I didn't click, right? Because, I mean, this guy was older than me. He's, I looked up to him. He was like a role model to me. And I was like, I'd love to be able to what? He was like, I'd love to be able to write. I can't write. And to me, at high school, writing was such a basic thing that I suppose my naivety was that I'd, I'd forgotten some people can't write, you know, and I'd, I'd genuinely forgotten it. And it was like a light bulb went off and I thought, well, my education is a tool. It's, it's a skill. It, it's a leveler. It puts me on the same level as settled people where my community has never been on that level and never been listened to. So I decided then and there that I'd go back to school and I'd use my education as a tool to advance my community, basically. So I went back to school, stuck in, did really, really well at school, was like a case study of the bad people turned good uh, and uh, won all these awards and did really well. 
And then I went to university. Um, and of course, when I went to university, I moved away from home. So I was able to basically come out as a traveller because my worry up until then was that if I said publicly that I was a traveller and was really proud about who I was and really open about it, it would impact on my wee sisters and they'd get bullied or, you know, my actions would have actions on them, whereas I could probably fight and look after myself. They maybe couldn't. So I thought, well, when I move to university, I'm no longer around them. I'll be who I am, basically. So I did. I became an activist. So although I speak about university as, you know, my activism has maybe taken over my university, really the only reason the university happened in the first place was because I wanted to be an activist. Mm-hmm. Because I realised at that moment that settled people, although in my community, a degree or a PhD or that doesn't really mean anything. They don't really care. It's just a bit of paper. And really, it is just a bit of paper. But to settled people, and I realised then that piece of paper actually means something, and it means that they'll listen to what you say. So, um, so I did. I went to university, and all of a sudden, whatever I said was then um, I was then university student says X, you know, and and it became more impactful. It was helpful. I mean, there was elements of it that I didn't really like, and um, there was elements of like you know the BBC and a few other big broadcasters that I did my initial um, interviews with they cast me as this kind of rogue turned good you know first traveler goes to university type of thing so it 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 kind of damaged the message that I was trying to get across because by no means am I the first traveler to go to uni and there's hundreds that have came before me perhaps thousands not till I am the only open Scottish traveler I know in a Scottish university at, at that point, and I was, you know, I didn't have any peers that I could turn around to and speak to about it. But it doesn't mean to say there weren't Scottish travellers there. I mean, my cousin was in university, the same city as me, but she just didn't feel comfortable about being open about who she was, you know. So it wasn't my fault, but media kind of done a disservice to the community by implying that, you know, we were uneducated through choice sort of thing which of course isn't the case. But that being said, university has taught me how to speak like a settled person and it's helped massively in terms of decision makers and getting them on side, basically helping the community and advocating for the community. There's a certain sadness in me that you had to adopt a certain way of talking in order to be listened to. I also am really moved by the anecdote that you shared about, was it your cousin? And, and you know, you, you suddenly clicked and you didn't use the word responsibility, but when I was listening, I almost felt like you had to be, <laughs> you had to do that because you were further along that path. You've used so many terms that I feel like it might be useful to unpick. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about settled people, and I feel like I can I can make assumptions about what you mean by that, but I'd be really interested to start there and just kind of get your impression totally. or, or, or how you're using that, yeah. So settled people, and again, that, that shows you the, the lingo, if you like, the jargon. Settled people are just non-travellers, basically non-GRT, non-Gypsies, or, or travellers, or Roma, uh, settled people. But... It's not the word I would have, if I hadn't went to school, if I hadn't have went on into work with governments and stuff, I would never say settled people. It's not something that travellers would say. You would say country folk. That's our word for settled people, right? But I've been kind of indoctrined into it now where you say settled people. But again, it kind of speaks to, whilst it's the official terminology is settled people for non-gypsy travellers, 
it speaks to this myth as well that travellers are inherently travelling, that we have to travel, right? And it's, it's not the case. Travelling and historical nomadism is, of course, a cornerstone of our heritage and our history. To many, including myself, travelling today is the main way, or one of the main ways, rather, that we express our identity. And that's true. But equally, if you've never travelled in your life, if you've lived in a house all of your days, um, you're no less a traveller. That being said as well, if you're a settled person and you move into a trailer and you travel all around the country every day, you're not a traveller because it's it's in your blood. It kind of speaks to that myth as well. And it's it's language, I suppose, that we've had to adopt. It's true. I mean, you hit on a, a soft note there in terms of, you know, adopting language to um, to be heard, you know, and it's it's true. I mean, even what we call ourselves, and I call myself a Scottish traveller, but traveller is a very, very new word. It wasn't used prior to like the 19, late 1960s, 1970s. Prior to that, we were tinkers. Prior to that, we were the Caird Nandu. Prior to that, we were broadly the Caird. You know, there's lots of words that we've been called over time. That's the thing, we've been called them. And we didn't call ourselves travellers. We were called that because we were travelling. So certain people are like, ah, they're travellers. That's not what we are. And even in our own language, we've been denied the agency to actually call ourselves what we are. And in my language, the word for a Scottish traveller is knacken. And it's always been knacken. It's never changed over thousands of years. In policy, if I call myself a knacken, no one has a clue what I'm talking about. So I have to call myself a traveller. Again, it shows you these power imbalances that exist. And anyone that's kind of got to my position and, and became an activist, I suppose, has had to take on board because otherwise you just don't get heard or folk just you know you get so lost in the minor or what people perceive as being minor details that you don't get your main point across that brings about the main difference in people's lives but the thing is the minor points even just what I call myself has been colonized you know and that's that's the way I see it and but then trying to reclaim the word knacking um, when you're operating in a political policy context is fraught with issues because if you start to reclaim knacking and only use knacking, then every policy that's been created that says Scottish travellers or Scottish gypsy travellers doesn't automatically refer to you. You know, and there's too much explaining has to go on. So, so it's difficult. It really is. It's a labyrinth. And I think, I think one of the key things, hopefully, during my life I'll help to change is that reclamation of our own terms and actually how we define ourselves in our own terms. Um, because I think if we can do that, it can help to pick away a lot of the stereotypes and the myths that surround us. I mean, if settled people were told, look, these people are called Nakin, they are indigenous to Scotland, Scottish travellers are vastly considered indigenous to Scotland, and they have intense oral history, they have heritage dating back thousands of years, you know, they can sing you a ballad from the 12th century. I think if people are told that, they understand it a bit better rather than, okay, these people are travellers and they travel. It's such more, it's, it's a deeper understanding and um, just through that one word, because as soon as you hear a word that's in someone's own language, it's less of a reference point and more of a explainer. And I think that's the bit that's been missed. And I have had the privilege of speaking to some First Nations peoples and they speak about the importance of that, actually being able to define in your own terms. And I think that's a part that's been missing for Gypsy Travellers for, for a long time. I mean, yeah, language is, it shapes the way we think. I can really understand the fundamental nature of what you're talking about. 
when we had our first conversation, you really clearly broke down the different meanings behind the words that I might use to name people who come from the kind of background that you're talking about. And I think we talked about words like gypsy and Roma and traveler. And I remember there being some really distinctions from across Europe and across history. And and I suppose I'm just thinking about people that might be listening that are coming from a position of total ignorance. (laughs) Um, And I wonder what we can do to kind of reduce that ignorance a tiny bit. Which is fair. And I mean, I, you know, this is one of the things I'm really clear on is that I don't expect people to know everything about travellers the same way I don't know everything about the LGBT community, for example, or, you know, it's, you're not born with this knowledge, you have to learn it. And sadly for travellers and gypsy people, it's very difficult for people outside our community to know about us or to learn about us because our histories, our culture is omitted from most of the school textbooks. You know, you there's no central book you can go and read. There's no, you know, and a lot of these things that have been written have been written by people not from within our community. And of course that brings around bias and, you know, levels of portrayal and reflection of who we are being somewhat skewed from what they are in reality. But yeah, I mean, the main groups, if you like, I mean, even to just... I suppose disentangle it, right? Because we in Scotland we use the word gypsy traveller. That's like the terminology. In the broader UK, it's GRT, Gypsy Roma Traveller. And it's basically a homogenization of multiple groups of people with multiple origins, heritages, and um, languages. You know, we're really actually quite we have solidarity between each other, and that's a point that's really important. Roma, gypsy, and traveller peoples have an antiquated, a very old, perhaps antiquated is the wrong word, but a very, very old relationship with each other and solidarity with each other. But actually our cultures in a lot of ways are very dissimilar. There's just a lot of nuance in, in our identities that often gets overlooked. I mean, to break it down to its, its, its basic points, Roma tends to be used in reference to European Roma. In Europe, the word gypsy is derogatory, so it wouldn't be used um, in, in mainland Europe. All Roma and all gypsy people originate in northern India, in the Punjab. Uh, that's why their language, Romanese, has similarities with Urdu and languages like that, but there's a lot of the words have root words in Sanskrit. And that's how they date it back to the Punjab, basically. Now, we know that they moved out of India thousands of years ago for whatever reason. There's a lot of stories to that. Um, but they did leave India and they migrated out through Eastern Europe, what was then uh, Romania, Turkey, the Byzantine Empire, settling along the way. So they, they fled. It's thought they fled the Persian Empire. That's basically it. So that's why they kept travelling. Travelled up through Eastern Europe, settling along the way. That's why you get large pockets of Roma in Bulgaria, Romania, places like that. Travelled up through Eastern Europe, up through Scandinavia, and then they crossed from Scandinavia to Scotland. So the first records of gypsies, as they were then known, in the UK was from Scotland. They landed in Scotland, and when they landed there, they met indigenous travelling people, Celtic travellers, who are called the Nakan. Now, the Nakan spoke Bjorlaregat, which was a language that still exists today, but it was based on ancient Gaelic and ancient Norse. Now, because they were both nomadic peoples, the Roma and the travellers of the Nakan, they intermarried at that point. They intermarried and Roma continued to travel down through Scotland. It's when we get the first record of a gypsy in Stirling in uh, 1504. And that's when King James IV 
proclaims um, the first ever Gypsy King, King uh, Johnny Farr. So they travel down through Scotland into England. And of course, with the English Channel, they couldn't go any further. So they all stopped. And that's where you get the English Gypsies or the Romani Chal. Basically, we have in mainland Britain two groups of travellers. And then the Gypsies, the English Gypsies, the Romani Gypsies, and the Scottish travellers. Then you have the Welsh Gypsies in Wales, of course, and they're a slightly separate migration. We're not entirely sure how they got there. Some people say they migrated from France to Wales, um, and they speak a different dialect of Roman uh, Romani than English Gypsies, and slightly different beliefs. Then you have the Irish travellers who are indigenous to Ireland, and again, they speak a totally different language to all of us, uh, Gammon, which is based on, well, based would be in disingenuous. It's similar to ancient Irish. Um, some people say it's actually earlier than the original Irish, but we're not entirely sure. We do know they're indigenous. So you've got these groupings of people, right, mulling around in the UK. We're all nomadic in differing ways. We all do pretty much the similar trades because any nomadic people tend to focus around the same trades, whether you're in North America or Australia with the Aborigines. All of our trades are very similar, right? We all kind of do the same thing because traveling inherently, you uh, move towards or gravitate towards certain trades and certain things to do. So we're craftsmen. So that we're all kind of mulling around. Over the centuries, especially in the 1700s, there was a guy called Grellman. Um, he was a famous academic. I think he was German, uh, although don't quote me on that one. He was a famous academic and he, he published an essay which basically created the notion of the gypsy. And this was when the problem started to arise. There'd been legislation put in place prior to this that was bad for travellers and bad for gypsy people. But up until that point, we'd been separate right the cell people recognized the nuance they recognized that we weren't all the same people but then in the 1700s this essay was published that basically villainized the notion of the gypsy and uh, it started to conflate our identities all into the one person or the one thing rather because it has to be said the notion of the gypsy that was created doesn't technically exist but then into the 19th century it really concreted itself within Scottish and British perceptions and we all just became this notion of the gypsy which was a negative thing right an invasive negative menacing thing that we don't want in society massively interesting how we got to that stage because when you look at history Scottish travellers because obviously that's my lived experience that's what I speak to most Scottish travellers actually we created the weapons for the clans that was our job we would travel around all the clan system mending weapons and when we travelled into areas, they held big banquets for us and, you know, they welcomed us with open arms. So moving from that to the 1700s, where we had travellers being hanged for the then crime of being a gypsy or sent slave plantations in the Caribbean, I think it's a massive turnaround. But within the settled mind, we haven't really moved on much from the late 1700s in terms of how people perceive gypsy people and a lot of the stereotypes around us being thieves, around us leaving mess everywhere we go or not paying taxes, another one, all of those were cemented in the 1700s. So in a way, it's actually, we haven't moved on that much. That is such a useful reference point to have you take us back to this essay in the 1700s. It's, it's really sad that that's where 
a lot of people's minds still are. I'm noticing my mind going to a few places. The first place is the history in England and the way in which common land was fenced off in the 1600s and the impact that that will have had on lots of people. But if I'm used to being nomadic, I can imagine it having a massive impact. And also the way in which society became a lot more focused around the written word. And so if I have an oral tradition, I can imagine there's suddenly a differential in terms of my ability to speak back to narratives that are being created around us. Totally. Those are really important points because you're right in saying, you know, once we started to gravitate towards a written word, travellers and gypsy people who were once renowned for their ability to remember. I mean, that's, that's what we've got to know. I mean, oral testimony was, was used in courts. I mean, it was, it was the primary function was remembrance. You know, it was so important in our society. And then it started to move towards the written word. And I think for our community that it made not only an identity out of the fact that we were ballad singers, that we were, uh, we could remember long stories that would go on for hours and hours. Some, some stories would go on for days. You know, not only have we kind of focused our identity around that, but also that we were renowned for it. We were now a people without a place or without a place in the, in the modern world, right? And that's something that comes back to a number of occasions throughout history was the fact that we seem to be perceived as a people that's outdated and that we're still living in the past. And I think a lot of that does come down to, you know, the fact that our heritage and the, and the way in which we regulate and that we create our kinship roles within our society is so massively different to the self community because what we've got to remember is and perhaps a good way of putting it or a good anecdote to use is in Scotland the clearances were were massive for an English audience or audiences that perhaps don't or haven't heard of, of the clearances the clearances were basically when um, Scottish landowners evicted all of their tenants, people that had lived on the land, crofters for hundreds of years, they evicted them all and cleared them from the land so that they could populate the land with sheep because it could make more money off sheep rather than people. At that time, it was perhaps easier, let's just say easier, to persecute the Gaelic culture, to persecute what made Gaelic identity. So the Gaelic language, the Gaelic connection with land, Gallic oral history, a lot of that was massively impacted by the clearances with populations being fragmented across the world to Nova Scotia and other places. Now with travellers, it was much harder to do that because we were travelling from place to place. So the same persecution that would have happened to us was much harder to do because we weren't settled in towns and places. And that comes into play really uh, massively into the 19th century when we started to see more policy getting put in place around our subversion to going to school. You know, we'd been taught our trades uh, orally from our dads and our mothers, and, and that's that's how we learned and indeed still do. But in the 19th century, it was much more around, you know, you had to go to school, you had to do this, and if you didn't, then you were primitive. If you look back to early recordings of travellers in the 19th century, they do, those are the words they use, it's primitive, outdated, and it was used as a way to remove children from our families you know they took traveler children they sent them abroad they migrated them out they boarded them to settled families because it would seem to be saving them from a detrimental lifestyle that's how they perceived it and we haven't really moved on much from there i mean that's 
that's a perception that a number of people um, still have and it's shown you know in, in a lot of statements that people in power still make you know so we've seen a lot of politicians recently and both local and national making comments that would show that that perception is still alive and, and well i think that when we're moving forward and when there's this pull on people to move towards a system it's the same with capitalism i don't want to get too much into that but settled people were easier pulled into things because they were settled right so inherently they had to go with the system because their whole livelihoods everything relied on it but for travelers we would just move to somewhere else it was easier for us to avoid things like that it was easier for us to retain the older way of doing things and you know and i think when it comes to capitalism when it comes to wealth and when it comes to money we're seen as being old-fashioned when we think of these things you know it's not uncommon for traveler men not to have a bank account at all and it's not for any untoward reasons because they don't trust banks they don't trust that they like to have their wealth not in just a number on a card but actually physical tangible that they can see it it harkens back to how we see wealth um, and how we see money often ways that's been used against us and shows like big fat gypsy weddings for example have tried to use our material wealth um, or perceived material wealth against us to make us look like we're all massively wealthy people who like to flaunt cash and like to that isn't the case at all and actually the reason that we keep it in material wealth is because it's an easier way to pass it on to our, our children you know when we have big brand new trailers it's not because we're massively wealthy you can go buy a brand new trailer for 20 30 pounds go and try and buy a house for 20 30 pounds you know there's, there's people out there who have what they would class as basic houses and they look at people with big caravans and they're like, oh, you know, that trailer must cost so much. They've got so much money. Well, we don't. It's significantly cheaper than going and buying a house. And that is our house. I think when people look at the wealth of travellers, they perceive it in a negative way. But also the way in which we see wealth within our community is anti-capitalist inherently because we don't agree with passing on wealth, right? We pass on items that have importance to people, perhaps. But we have this really old belief before someone dies they have to give you whatever they want to give you so perhaps you'll get a necklace from your granny or like a ring for your granda or something like that after they die everything they owned gets burned everything the notion is that you're starting from scratch you don't start from inherited wealth you go out and you make your own basically um, and then when you die it all gets burnt again it's quite a traditional belief but we still believe that giving things after someone dies um, at least in my family giving things after someone dies there's bad luck attached to that item. So if you think about it from a capitalist perspective, you know, you can't inherit wealth, you can't gain, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, you can't build wealth. Aristocracies are impossible within our culture. So I think because of that, because of our relationship with money, that we're quite, money's there to spend. We don't like gathering money or, and greed's a massive no-no in our community and there's so many cultural rules and taboos which avoid greed. You know, I think from a capitalist perspective, it's seen as, non-conforming and because of that travelers have been a very lucrative target for a long time for marginalization because you know we don't we don't agree with that and we don't agree with private ownership of land and i mean that ties into your point as well in that travelers traditionally didn't own land gypsy people travelers we, we didn't own land we used common ground and the common ground was used by everyone right it was there for if you wanted to go and graze your horse you know you had common ground or if you had a sheep you'd go and graze it and for travellers, it was a place we could build our camps. And it was known, right? And it was accepted that within each village, there would be a piece of common ground 
and we would move on to it at a certain point each year and people knew we were coming and that was just that was the way of it for centuries now this went on you know you talk about obviously fencing off common land in, in england uh, quite quite a while ago but it did go on in terms of common pastures and common common ground perhaps not in word but certainly in scotland in word but perhaps not south of the border it did go on up until very recently but then what happens is settled people change so settled people have no longer grazed their sheep they no longer need a bit for horses to graze so what do you do with the land and so a lot of settled people built it into parks or they maybe build a building on it or they make a car park or these types of things but when they did that, they didn't think about the travellers. They didn't think about gypsy and traveller people who relied on that piece of land for centuries as a piece of accommodation, basically. We knew that when we were travelling through that area, we could stop in that camp, as we have done for hundreds of years. So then what happened was when it started to get developed, we would then move on to that piece of land, and people would be like, oh, they're invading our park, they're coming onto our school grounds, they're moving into the car park. But we're not. We've been going to that piece of land for hundreds of years. It's just our usage of that piece of land was omitted when they were developing it. And that did take away a lot of our traditional stopping places. Not all of them, but it did take away a, a good chunk of them because we were just omitted from the discussion. But I do think that in addition to that, we did obviously have other stopping grounds which weren't common ground. Over time, people have just saw our way of life as outdated. And even people that like the notion of a wagon turning up or a, a you know, a tent getting put up or whatever, they see it as romanticised. And if you don't fit that romantic image, you've kind of lost your right to staying in their location because you're, you're seen as an outsider, right? Although we're not. You know, I always proudly say that I'm a local everywhere because I've travelled all over Scotland. I know, I know intricate local details of places north, south, west, you know. So I have a knowledge as a local would. The majority of places where I would know all of this stuff very few of them would say that I was a local. You know, they'd say I was an invader. So I think there's so many elements that play into how travellers are perceived. But I do think that at the heart of it, there is a level of the fact that we are perceived as nonconformist. I'd never heard or thought about what you said in terms of the approach to the acquisition of material possessions. And yeah, it's certainly an interesting point in terms of how that positions you in terms of the dominant social paradigm. My career has been in education and I've been in meetings where people have said, I have this person in the class. They're from a traveler background. They come in sometimes. I don't know how, I don't know what to do. I say that and it, you know, it might sound like it's coming from a, a place of ignorance or insensitivity. I'd be interested to hear your take on that as someone who has an understanding of the culture, but also has been to school. And as, as you put it, put on your settled mask. Yeah. How would you like to uh, interface with these, with these systems, which are currently kind of around and, and in play? The bottom line is, I mean, traveler bounds are bounds. I'm using a lot of Scottish slang, but tri- Traveller kids are just kids, right? I mean, that's, that is the bottom line. So in some ways, you wouldn't treat them any differently. I think it's important as an educational professional to understand the context that every child is coming from. And that's the same for settled people, of course. I mean, some Burns will be coming from... Sorry, I keep slipping into Burns. Burns is just like Scots for children. You don't need to apologise about using slang with me. 
<laughs> so yeah, I mean, like obviously you'll have parents who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, from wealthy backgrounds, you know, and I think the way in which you think about gypsy children and traveller children shouldn't be any different. It's just understanding the place that they're coming from because it's ultimately going to have an impact on how they learn and what they're going to learn. So I think that's important. And I think a lot of teachers don't, they don't have a lot of time. You know, there's a level of appreciation there that I think to go and learn about gypsy traveller cultures in their entirety. And even, you know, some of the stuff we've covered in this is quite in depth, but you don't have to do that, right? You don't have to understand that all gypsies originate in the Punjab and their specific dialect. You don't need to know all that. You just need to know that travellers are still a very marginalised people. It's highly likely that the kid in your class has experienced discrimination. They have experienced hate crime. They're probably still experiencing it in your class from their peers. So I think when you understand that context, it's not about what you do, but it's about what you can do. And it's about actually using the fact that you have a burn in your class that you know is from that background to actually talk about that background, right? To, to make a space for that in your curriculum. Because we always talk about, you know, this isn't in the curriculum and that isn't in the curriculum. Obviously, you can only cover so much and obviously you only have a certain amount of time. But I think that when you have people in your classroom, obviously from certain backgrounds, you need to make the effort to show inclusion of those backgrounds within the narratives that you're teaching. What that does is it allows the bairn to know that they're accepted in your class, that their history and heritage has a place within what they're being taught. But also it shows their peers that you should learn about this person. You know, it's not bad that they're a traveller. It's not bad that they're a gypsy because they're probably hearing that at home. Discrimination and racism comes down from the top. It comes down from your mother and father and your parents and your guardians. And from the people that you're brought up with, that's where you learn your racism. And so if there's kids being picked on in your class, the peers will be learning it from home. So you have to take the opportunity to be the alternative narrative. And I think that if more teachers, this didn't happen when I was at school. It really, really didn't. You know, my experiences with teachers around my identity were really negative. I haven't had one positive since I've left school, I have, but not when I was at school. And I think if a teacher had shown me my heritage, my people, my contribution that I'd made within the curriculum, I think that would have been really impactful. It would have also given me an ally in a place where I was the only traveller, so I didn't have any allies. So it gave me a way of, it would have given me a way of, you know, if I'd been getting picked on or folk had been calling me names, they would have had something else, something positive about me. So they, it might have lessened that. Um, it would have lessened the blow either way. So I think it's not about what you do, but it's what you can do, is the way I look at it. Yeah, I hear that. The way that you describe the changing of land made me feel like there are ways of life that were in existence and that other ways of life were kind of overlaid over the top, like a template. And there's a conflict there, right? If, if I'm used to going to a certain area for generations, my family's been going there and it's important to us for all sorts of reasons. And suddenly it's a car park. And I set up my home spaces as, as I'm used to doing. And people are like, but I want to park my cars here. You have, you have this kind of conflict. And how do you measure up the, the rights to that space? And, you know, certainly we've got to acknowledge that there's a whole lot of power behind <laughs> one of those uh, 
arguments for who, who's right to use the space it is. Yeah. I suppose in terms of schools, what I was thinking about is the fact that you might have children that their families are used to traveling at a certain time of year or that there are routines and rituals around that. We have these physical school buildings for the most part. I wonder what systems could be designed to to make it as as kind of a accepting and welcoming as possible. Yeah, and that's crucial. I mean, one of the roles that I hold um, is with the Scottish Traveller Education Programme based at the University of Edinburgh. And one of the, or the piece of work rather that I do with them is around young men in my community and how they learn and how we can actually encourage more young men into further and secondary education and how they can actually mentor and be role models for other young men. So it's a, a piece of work that I'm really passionate about and I think it's going to hopefully lead the way to big changes with a lot of young men's lives. It's not to say that I believe the one way should be, you know, you go to primary school, you go to high school, you go to university, because having done all three stages now, um, I'm not the most educated man out there, but, you know, having been through all three, I can safely say that, you know, I have missed elements of education that aren't perhaps as formal. So there's informal education elements that, you know, my cousins are more advanced than me in because, you know, they didn't go to high school and they had the chance to learn a different way and a different kind of method. So I think education happens to us and it's how we can facilitate that education to be most meaningful. I don't think we need to facilitate education to happen. It does, it happens, right? I mean, there's young travellers who are my cousins who are significantly better off than me in terms of financial. I mean, that's the kind of measurement in our society, isn't it? But financially they're better off than me um, but they've never went to school a day in their life you know so I think if we live in a society that measures success which I disagree with it has to be said if we live in a society that measures success on wealth the numbers don't add up then so I think that even if we're looking at those measurements we need to start thinking about education as a much more fluid thing how we can facilitate education to be most meaningful to people because the bottom line is, if you try and teach someone something that they're not interested in, they're not going to learn, right? So you can do education to someone as much as you want, but unless that's meaningful to them, they're not going to take it on. I think that education for, for my community needs to be a bit more fluid. Thankfully, COVID-19 has actually shown us that it can be more fluid. So there's been a lot more push on digital inclusion, digital literacy um, and blended learning models where, you know, if we teach a family how to use an iPad, for example, you know, if they have access to that, if we're bridging gaps of wealth and poverty and things so that they can access that, if they move from here to the South England, it doesn't matter, right? They're still connected. If we can move our frameworks, um, education frameworks, to less doing education to someone, which is really outdated, in some ways, the fact that you go to a bricks and mortar school, you have to wear this school uniform, you sit like this, and then you read like this, and it's very structural, and it doesn't work for a lot of people. You know, humans don't learn that way. If you look at our biology, that's not how we're supposed to learn. If you go back in time to where we had to learn, it was much more fluid. It happened through meaning rather than the fact that we needed to get this, right? We needed to get an, an, a piece of paper to do this, and we didn't. We needed to able to work out how to cross that river so we could go and hunt that deer or so you know it was much more fluid and much more meaningful and I think that if we can boil education back down to its genesis to why we actually need it and why it makes an impact on our lives 
I think we'll be in a much more fairer position. And actually, it doesn't have to be designed solely for travellers. It doesn't have to be designed solely for people with learning disabilities or people who are um, school refusers. It doesn't have to be designed for them. But actually, if we boil it back down to the fact that education needs to have meaning, I think all of those things will fall into place and the system that we'll come out with will be a lot more inclusive in the long run. Focus on meaning is so often overlooked. You've made me think of the fact that there are already precedents for having distributed databases of students. I'm thinking about in England, we have something called the virtual school. I don't know if Scotland has a similar thing, but children who are in care sometimes move between carers. I suppose the rationale is we're worried that a child might move location and then you know they're not picked up by the next or whatever it is and so the virtual school is literally that it's there's a virtual head teacher and and the, the role of it is to kind of keep some sense of where this person is and if they're getting what they need i'm just thinking if you combine that precedent of like the infrastructure with exactly what you're describing in terms of why can't we have more digital blended learning suddenly you wouldn't have to go to uh, a bricks and mortar school as you put it and that's it. I mean, bricks and mortar schools were built like everything in our society. Really, when you look at our society, it was built for a settled populace. Yes, the majority of our community, our society rather, are settled. But obviously, when it's built for a settled perspective, it doesn't take into account traveller folk. And a building is such a foreign, alien environment for a traveller who's been brought up on a camp, right? And I mean, on a camp, it's like one big family, right? Even if you're not biologically related, it's like one big family. So you can, if you want something to eat, you can go with wee Jimmy and go into his trailer and eat. And then you can go out and you can, you know, run about the camp. You treat everyone like they're your mother and father, right? So much so that a lot of traveling gypsy people call all older people auntie and uncle. It's just what happens, right? So it's, it kind of expresses that. But when you're in a school, not only is it a big physical building, that's imposing, that you're not used to, that you've maybe even never even set foot in a building like that. But when you go in, it's so structured. You know, you're not allowed to go to that classroom. You have to go to this one. You have to sit here. You have to, And that's so foreign to a lot of young gypsy and traveller people. It can often lead them into bother, specifically boys. So the boys, obviously, you know, like all traveller bands, we're taught to think for ourselves. Oftentimes, we find that when boys go into to high school primarily, they tend to act up. Right, and they tend to, it seems to be shown as like antisocial behavior or behavioral issues, but actually, it's usually not behavioral issues, it's actually just the way they act on a camp, and it's totally fine. It's just because you've, you've, you've moved the context, but in a young person's brain, that's just the way life is, right? And I think that that part there, I don't think it was overlooked, I think they knew what was happening when they designed schools, because um, the same could be said for a lot of working class families, like those elements that I said there. They knew what they were doing, but they were trying to make it a regimented way that it built conformity, that it built people that, you know, all kind of thought that way and, and learned that way. But that doesn't work. And um, so I think that now we're thinking much more inclusively about education. We actually need to redesign education because education was never designed to be inclusive. Um, it was designed to be, a, you know, a concrete box and you had to be pushed into that concrete box until you were square. Um, and if you weren't, then you weren't smart enough, you were stupid. 
if we want to make it inclusive and we want to make sure that it's accessible to all people despite background, we need to redesign the whole system. And, you know, I'm in talks around education and inclusivity all the time, but I don't feel people are taking it to that step. It's just kind of what can we bolt onto education as stands, but actually what we're bolting onto, the, the structure that we're hoping to bolt onto doesn't work in essence. There are a lot of principles behind education which are very... Um, you used the word archaic earlier, I think, and you retracted it, but I'm going to use it now because, you know, there, there definitely are some archaic intentions behind mass education. Yeah, I've been having lots of conversations recently about the purpose of education, the potential need to redesign it, and part of that did come out of what the pandemic created in terms of flipping and scrambling the roles that people took for granted. You mentioned earlier, before we started recording, that your own plans to kind of go across to different sites had been impacted by the pandemic. And I suppose I'd really like to hear about that. More broadly, it also helped me to understand and empathise with, yeah, how different communities' ways of life might have been impacted by a lockdown, (laughs) you know, like physical lockdown. Because there's an assumption there, right, that you have a box to be locked into for lockdown. Exactly. It massively impacted on me. I have to say not as much as it impacted on some in the community, and I'll kind of go on to that. But um, in terms of personally, I mean, this would have been the first summer that me and my wife would have went on the road together. It would have been the first opportunity I had to kind of show her the camps that I grew up on, the camps that obviously have meaning to me and my family, to kind of have that journey with her, I suppose. So it's impacted on my graduation um so I should have had a graduation ceremony but I got the degree in the mail I should have been legally married so the actual marriage ceremony should have happened it had to be postponed there was a number of funerals of um, important people to me in the traveler community that I couldn't go to I had to watch online so that was that was massively impactful that being said when I uh, went away with my life in October last year we moved into a cottage so we weren't as bad impacted as travellers who were on the road. Um, and I'm thankful that, that we did have a cottage to, I suppose, lock down into. But um, yeah, for a lot of travellers, it was very, very difficult. Not only because of the same pressures that I had, like, you know, going on the road is such a massive outlet for us. It's such an important reconnection with our identity that it, it helps our mental well-being. So, like, there's a lot of travellers who suffer, well, most traveller men actually suffer from SAD, the seasonal depression. Um, and when they go on the road in the summer, that's when travellers will say, that's when I'm most happy because it's it's like reconnecting. It's like, I don't know, it's difficult to explain, but it's like a feeling of freedom. And I use that very hesitantly because I don't want to romanticise it. It's just, it's a feeling of naturalness. I don't know, it, it's strange. It's like belonging. That's how it feels. It feels like a belonging that you don't get. Like, I love my my cottage don't get me wrong and you know we've put our own stamp on it and made it our own but I don't get the same feeling of belonging as I do when I'm on camps it still feels like I've got a facade you know with the little picket fence and you know it still feels like I'm trying to fit in and still feels like I'm trying to portray someone that I'm I'm not so going on the road's really really important for people for their mental health in some ways it kind of builds up their reserves so that they can get through winter so that they can last till next summer and if you go to a traveler in the winter they tend, you know, some people call it the death days. 
they tend to always say, oh, I'm looking forward to the summer. It'll be fine once we get to the summer. Once the yellow's on the broom, once the spring comes round, it'll be perfect. But this year, we're not able to say that because we've not even had a shift, you know? So in some ways, we've used up our reserves. Now we're going into another winter and there's a lot of worry in our community around anxiety and rises in depression and suicide rate as well. It's already massively high. I mean, in some places, it's seven times the rate of settled people. So it's, it's a big worry that way. Um, and it has impacted on mental health. In terms of roadside families, obviously access to basic services is hard enough at the best of times. But during COVID, we were lucky in Scotland in that part of the initiatives that, along with other third sector organisations and partners, are helped to create a number of decisions that were passed in Scotland that meant that evictions stopped for travellers, which was good. It meant that local authorities would provide food water in some cases and fuel cards in some places so that people who were roadside or who were struggling to find a stable place could settle there for the pandemic and didn't have to move on and that helped a lot of families it really did because being evicted from place to place is hard but when you've not even got a fridge I mean I think people forget about how basic it is when you're living on the roadside you know you don't have steady electricity you don't have wi-fi you don't have um, a steady supply of clean water. You don't have a toilet. You don't have anywhere to wash. And so a lot of the places that we would rely on for those services, like, for example, a toilet, right? We'd rely on public toilets or maybe like shopping centre or stuff like that. They were all shut or you weren't able to use them. So for a toilet, where were you meant to go? For showers, we'd rely on like sports centres, things like that. They were all shut. So where were you meant to go? So there was a massive service need. Um, in Scotland, as I say, they stalled evictions. There were services given to roadside families, which was really good. But the same can't be said for a lot of areas south of the border. As bad as I had it, and there was families in Scotland who had it a lot worse than me, but also there's families in England who had it a lot worse than any of us up here. The impacts are obviously going, the mental health, of course, but also the financial insecurity. So a lot of travellers are seasonal workers. So they work over the summer and whatever they earn in the summer basically lasts them through the winter until next spring and then they go out again. But a lot of travellers weren't able to work this spring, weren't able to work in summer. So they've used up all of their savings and they're going into a winter when there's no work for us with nothing. A lot of them have never claimed benefits before in their lives, have never, wouldn't even know how to go about that. Obviously the, the impact on a community that's so self-resilient, you know, self-dependent, on you know, the notion of claiming benefits is terrifying for a lot of traveller men specifically. I've had a lot of calls recently around this. So the problems haven't ended um, and I think they'll be long lasting after the pandemic. It has impacted on our community massively. And in terms of racism, racism's went through the roof. And the amount of instances of uh, hate crime and instances of racism that have been reported to me uh, have went up than what would usually be this time of year. You know, people are they're emboldened by the fact of the lockdown, especially in terms of the fact that people shouldn't be moving out with their localised area. With, with travellers, it's much more difficult. If you're roadside and you've stayed in one location for X amount of time, people want you to move. You know, it's very, very difficult to stay in one place. I mean, certainly for a year, you'd never get, but it's very, very difficult to stay in one place. And now that the evictions um, are probably starting, to, well, they are starting to happen again, people are starting to be made feel very unwelcome if they're moving into an area. And it's difficult because you can understand to a certain extent settled people's 
worry and anxiety around people moving into that area. But equally, there's this lack of understanding of context and the fact that if you've got nowhere to go, where are you supposed to move to? You know, and what where are you supposed to go? Um, and I think there's this emboldened uh, narrative around people who don't want, who didn't want travellers in the area in the first place, and who would have been racist anyway, but are kind of coming out of the woodwork now because they've almost got an excuse or a scapegoat to blame it on. So that's particularly worrying, I have to say, and I think that will last for a long time yet. Yeah, it's definitely impacted on me, and it's definitely impacted on the community massively. I see in the the papers the amount of anxiety that exists on a societal level at the moment and I know that psychologically it's so much harder to empathize when you're anxious and unfortunately something like a pandemic provides really difficult human experiences and it's so important to empathize and to understand and be like oh you know I didn't know (laughs) and uh, adjust adjust your behavior accordingly I hadn't thought about the seasonal nature of work for some communities. Yeah, I'm wondering what what kinds of things you think could be helpful moving forward in terms of what you talked about with uh, finances and also with mental health. Definitely, and, and this is tying into a lot of conversations I'm having with the government just now and local authorities as well to just try and see you know what can actually be done. Because in a lot of ways, I mean, the work... The, the work's difficult because it, it, it's inherently seasonal, right? So we can't make work happen in, in the winter. That, that just can't be done. But I think support getting built now is crucial because what I don't want to happen is for winter to come round and for third sector and public sector to turn around and be like, oh, all of these people now need to claim benefits and we don't know how they're going to do it. You know, I think we need to make sure that there is a level of knowledge within the community that are around services that they can access, you know, things that they are entitled to, and also a level of confidence building in that, look, there's a lot of people right now on universal credit who wouldn't otherwise be on universal credit, but they're really struggling to pay the bills because they've just got no work or because of COVID or, you know, you're not unique. I think that's the thing because a lot of traveling men are really, really worried right now that they've basically failed their families because they're not providing. And that's having massive pressures on them in terms of their own mental health and and how they see themselves. And we just need to make sure that they understand, one, who they can contact to get support, both for their mental health and for practical stuff, just by going on universal credit, for example, or any of the financial supports that are there, doesn't make you a failure. That's something, you know, I'm talking about travellers here, but I think our whole society needs to prepare itself for this because... There is. There's so many people out there who perhaps held it as a corner post of their own identity of who they were, that, you know, they were self, self-reliant, you know, I make my own money, I don't have to rely on anyone. And now they're finding themselves, perhaps for the first time ever, having to rely on government or, or whoever to support them through this time. That's going to be a massive pressure on a lot of people. And I don't feel the public sector is totally prepared yet for that. And I don't feel like there's enough support there financially for the third sector and I think there needs to be, because if there's not, obviously that's going to impact on the family unit. It's going to impact not only on that individual who is in that position, but it'll impact on the kids. It'll be impacting on their education. I mean, the impacts are, are massive. And I think that decision makers haven't fully appreciated that. And 
the way policy is currently framed and the way that the decisions and the announcements and the briefings are being framed is around office workers, it's around people who work nine to five who aren't seasonal workers. The worrying thing is seasonal workers are some of the most marginalised people in our communities. You know, they are the seasonal workers and the financial insecurity of those communities is, is bad enough at the best of times, but right now it's going to have a massive implication as well. In terms of the mental health, I just think that there needs to be support there. I think that mental health services need to be accessible. Um, I mean, even the fact that to get, certainly in Scotland at least, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong in terms of an English context, but to see counsellors from the NHS, you know, you have to be based in the one place. If you travel from place to place, they'll transfer you to a different team and you might not be able to see a counsellor. And So that's not inclusive for traveller peoples. The fact that you have to meet face-to-face or you have to have a phone line that works because they won't see you online is again an issue for a lot of people. So it's it's actually the systems that operate both within the public and the third sector. How inclusive actually are they? Because I'm always wanting to positively twist things, right? Is there a way in which we can both appreciate the massive need that currently exists um, within our society for mental health support, but actually is there a way that we can use this current learning experience to redesign the way that we approach things um, and the way in which we support communities and make it accessible? Because I think we can. I really do. I think that COVID has done a number of terrible things, but it has shown us that the status quo both needs to change but actually can change through the right engagement and the right conversations being had, we can actually create systems which are much more inclusive, are much more representative, much more reflective of people's needs as well. I think those are the two key elements, if I'm honest. But I think if those are done, travellers, but more broadly, actually, marginalised communities in our our society will be much better supported going forward. Thank you for trying to pick out some uh, glimmers of hope there. Just thinking personally, in terms of my own practice, I'm a psychologist and over lockdown, my colleagues hacked together phone line services from nowhere. I'm really curious to know what will happen moving forward. Will those systems become formalized? It's exactly as you say, when there's a crisis, sometimes amazing things can come out in terms of, well, why don't we just do this? Oh, yeah, okay, let's do that. And, and suddenly you have, a, you have a solution and it's happening. Even things which were viewed as permanent or immovable suddenly can be seen as totally adjustable and adaptable. And the, the example I always come back to is the furlough scheme in England. Within a month, there was a working web platform and people were receiving money. Within a month, you know... Yeah. The most permanent of things that, you know, the assumption you have to work to earn money in the vast majority of cases was suddenly just, oh, no, we can find a way around that. Oh, my gosh. You know, if if that can happen, what else can happen? So I suppose that's a challenge to politicians out there. (laughs) I'm really struck by something you said earlier when we were talking about the curriculum. I'm wondering what written resources or sources of information there are out there for people who are interested in learning more yeah and don't know where to go totally i mean there is actually quite a lot that's been created over the covid period as well which is really nice to see in terms of just a couple i mean there's travelers times are a fantastic resource in general to learn about gypsy people and traveler people through our own voices 
through our heritage, but actually in contemporary times as well, and what matters to us now and what's kind of going on. Um, but they released a really, really good education pack that's available on their website for teachers to easily incorporate gypsy traveller cultures and heritages within their own curriculum and within their classrooms. Fantastic resource, highly recommend it. And it's obviously built for England and Wales primarily. There's also one in Scotland that's been built by STEP, Scots Traveller Education Programme. So on their website, you'll find a number of really, really good resources. They've taken a really good approach actually as well that looks towards more blended learning and looks towards their digital families program, Teacher in a Trailer. So it's really good. It's like a series of little videos, basically lessons that are delivered by a teacher from inside a, a caravan, inside a trailer, which is meant to obviously help traveller communities access education for a blended format who can't always access schools. There's also a lot of practical guidance in there for teachers around how to incorporate into their curriculum, but actually also how they can build up their own understanding and answers to questions that constantly come up. And there's a lot of resources in there. It's really a treasure trove of resources. So I'd highly recommend those two. There's also a number of really good books. So perhaps for primary school teachers, there's a lot of really good, easy to read books um, that have been created by Richard O'Neill, a Romani traveller author. He writes in Romani, so it's got English, but it's also got the actual the gypsy language through it as well, which is really good. And there's a couple of resources that I'm working on up in Scotland around, specifically a man called Stanley Robertson, who is like a tradition bearer uh, in Scotland, very renowned traveller man, basically around his life and around how we can build acknowledgement of traveller culture, but actually how we can use that acknowledgement to build a more inclusive space for travellers today. So that will also be up on the Elphinstone Institute's website at the University of Aberdeen. So there's a few things out there and, you know, that's just scraping the surface. But I think that's a good starting point for people. And if you are interested in expanding your knowledge, there's a lot of charities out there who work with Gypsy and Traveller peoples and they're always happy to help. Um, So if you just look up Gypsy Traveller Charity in your local area, there will be one, um, whether it's a national charity branch or whether it's a localised trust, there's always something. And I would highly recommend for you know, educational professionals who maybe work in formal environments or informal environments to actually contact these people as well, because they can actually, they can help with engagement um, and they can actually help with making a more personal relationship with families, which is usually the key. And what I always say is travellers deal with people, not systems. And anyone who's met a traveller will testify to this, you know, they won't say, oh, I worked with this department or oh, I worked with this, you know, sector or I worked with Susan, or I worked with Phil, or they've got a thing with people, it's not, it's not systems. And if you want to engage effectively with travellers and to make their learning and education meaningful, you have to get on the people level. That's what I believe in. That sounds so useful, and I'm definitely going to look up some of those resources myself. Where can people reach you if they're interested in your work or they want to know more about what you're doing? I recently started up a social enterprise called Progress and Dialogue. Basically, Progress and Dialogue is there to empower grassroots lived experiences from grassroots communities, uh, mainly marginalised communities. So we hold events quite regularly. And so if people are interested in hearing from lived experience, please come along to our Conversations for Change events. Um, And they can be on anything from trans identities and experiences to Gypsy Roma Traveller identity to the other one recently on the Black Lives Matter movement and its impact. And the key thing with those is it's facilitated by Progress and Dialogue, but it's all about providing a platform to grassroots voices and grassroots champions. 
If you really want to learn what the story really is on reality and on the ground, follow Progress and Dialogue at Society Dialogue on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page under Progress and Dialogue. Uh, and I have a Twitter page as well at David Donaldson. So you can follow some of my kind of more broader activism work. But yeah, I'm always keen to speak to people. I'm always keen to share the culture. Um, but most importantly, if anyone does want advice on reaching out with gypsy travellers or how they can make their own practice more inclusive, I'm always keen to help. Because as I say, you know, all of my work's done so that the future me in the future, you know, if I ever do have kids or grandkids, they don't go through the same struggles that I did when I went to school. Davey, it's so good to catch up with you, man. There's so much in that conversation. Thank you. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. You've been listening to The Sizzle Podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best thing that you can do to support us is to subscribe yourself and to share the podcast with people that you think would enjoy it. Looking forward to catching you next time on The Sizzle Podcast. <laughs>